Hebrews chapter 27. That is not verses 27 and 29. That is literally chapters 27, 28, and 29 tonight. Uh, as we go through this, much of this we have studied when we studied in Leviticus. So, and when we get to that sections, or that chapters 28 and 29, I will be highlighting those sections there uh, because it's just a lot of a lot of animals being noted of uh, that were sacrificed. So we won't, uh, for time's sake, uh, touch on those details. I titled it New Leadership and Generation, New Generation, because that's exactly what we'll see in these three chapters tonight. In chapter 27, we're going to see the fact that the passing of Moses and a new leader is coming on, on the scene to lead the people into the promised land. In chapters 28 and 29, we're going to see that the, the new generation, the whole new generation that was raised up in the wilderness during the 40 years, is now going to be taught, once again, the very basics of what it means to sacrifice and to worship the God uh, of, of Israel and how important that lessons are. But we start here in Numbers chapter 27, and let's just take a look at the first five verses here, and it's, then they came to the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Mikhar, the son of Manasseh, from the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. And these were the names of his daughters, Mahiah, Noah, Hagah, Milka, and Terzah. And they stood before Moses, before Eliezer, the priest, and before the leaders of all the congregation by the doorway of the tabernacle, that's important, of meeting, saying, O Father, or our Father died in the wilderness, but he was not in the company of those who gathered together against the Lord, in company with Korah, but he died in his own sin, and he had no sons." Why should the name of our father be removed from among his family because he had no son? Give us a possession among our father's brothers. So Moses brought their case before the Lord. Now you see here of Zelophehad had daughters and no sons. The reason we see in these verses why these daughters have saying this to Moses is that, hey, he wasn't involved with Korah and all that rebellion coming against you, Moses. That is not why he died, but he died in his own sin. So whatever it was, he died and it implies that his sin caused him not to have sons because he couldn't continue to live and to potentially have a son, I believe is what, he's, what they're trying to say. But there was five daughters that are now coming to Moses and saying, we understand traditionally that the land and any heritage was passed down to the sons. And we will see here that there was a course of action of how that was to pass down. But our name's just going to wipe out because there's no sons to carry on the last name of our father. And this is, we're asking you to reconsider this. Now it's interesting, normally that land of inheritance should have again passed from a father to his sons in Israel, not to the daughters. What the case here of these five daughters are presenting is that, and generally the system was not completely, um, you know, keeping an account of what the situations could happen in certain families and their will, their will, their father's inheritance simply just 
be assumed by someone else and, and their name not there and, and it should be identified to be there. But in general, the system was not completely unfair to women. A woman received a dowry from her father as a wedding present, if you remember. And typically the father then required a, his potential son-in-law to come up with the other part of the dowry that was a larger part of the dowry. And again, the dowry might consist of clothes and jewelry or um, money or few, furniture or anything of, of value uh, so that if something happened then that would help provide for her if she was no longer had a husband left for her or unexpectedly died. So when you take a look at that, you have to note that these daughters um, come to Moses. They didn't sit there and complain. They might have complained. We don't see any word of that complaint. But they really come to present their case to Moses, to the place, to the door of the tabernacle. They came to where they should have done. Not make a big scene out in the middle of the, the tent camp or out there on some other, in the middle of moving and causing a stir. But they brought it to the, to the place where they're gathered spiritually to deal with the situations at hand. And when we face challenges and have questions and need prayer, if we come to the place where the Lord is honored and where his presence, his people are gathered in his name, we'll receive counsel vastly different. You'll receive godly counsel versus you going out and asking your friends and neighbors and people who don't even know who God is or even following God. And that's the challenge. These young ladies understood they could go out among the Israel, Israelites, their neighbors, and get their opinions. But that is not where you should take your concerns. That's not where you should be taking and getting wise counsel. You should be going to where God is present. God is in the people that is going to give you godly wisdom in regards to those challenges and issues that you're dealing with. And it's through the body of Christ we receive this living, truthful counsel from our living Lord. Why? Because the, the, the Word of God is what is who is our counselor. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to minister to you and I, and, is the, and, and it's the, He's the great counselor for us. Why would we go to any other place for counseling than the God who created us? Who knows us inside and out, knows everything. He's all present, all powerful. Why don't we go to God for our counsel? Versus worldly wisdom. Well, these ladies chose wisely. They came to the high priest, they came to the leader Moses, and they presented the case. And Moses was very wise. He listened. He did not discount them because there were five daughters coming and see him. Oh, you're just coming to complain. Get over it and move on. No, no. They came, he listened, and he did something extremely wise. He didn't respond quickly and say, well, that's the way it is. No. He said, it says right here at the very end, verse 5, Moses brought their case before the Lord. This was different this challenge, this request, this counseling, this what are we going to do here? He did not sit there and say, you know, never had this one happen before. I'm not sure. This is new. So I'm just going to make it up as I go. No. He says, I need to spend time with the Lord and allow the Lord to show me what is the wise counsel from, the, from wisdom from above to tell 
me what I should tell you to how to handle this. Imagine after 40 years, you would think Moses had this every scenario possible. And that he would be the wisest leader. How could he not, after leading two to three million people through the wilderness and, and working and hearing directly from God, every situation must be. You've been in ministry for 40 years. You should know everything. Uh, that's not, not true. doesn't matter how long you've been in the ministry. doesn't matter how long you've been a, a parent or a, a grandparent. God, you need to go to God and you need to get wise counsel to make sure you hear what is truly wisdom from God from above to do in these situation, new situations that they find themselves. So he prays to the Lord. He comes to the Lord and starts praying and asking God, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to, how to answer and respond to this. But God, you know, so what do you want me to do? So we see in verses 6 through 11, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The daughters of Zelophehad, speak what is right, and you shall surely give them a possession of inheritance among their father's brothers, and cause the inheritance of their fathers to pass to them. And you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall cause his inheritance to pass to his daughters. If he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the closest relative closest to the relative closest closest him in his family and he shall possess it and it shall be to the children of Israel a statue of judgment because just as the Lord commanded Moses. So it appears God seemed pleased that the daughters here brought the issue to Moses. How wonderful it is where God looks down and sees us doing it according to his way. And if you don't see it in the scripture, you, kind of, you go to the Lord. You don't make it up. You don't figure out what's best for you. and how you. No, Moses said, no, I'm going to go to God and seek counsel in this because I don't see what God has already shown me in this situation. But he's very pleased, God is very pleased that the daughters came to Moses, Moses came to God, and God declared that if a father had no sons, the inheritance could go to the daughters. Now, allowing daughters to inherit where there were no sons in the family created another problem, though. It created a problem through that when they're married and they would take the family land with them, and they get married with that land, then what happens is that land now becomes the new husband's or the, the husband's estate. So to deal with this, we will see in chapter 36, we will see this actually gets addressed of that, that kind of that sense, situation. It brings in additional rules governing the marriage of heretesses or in inheritances. How do, you, how do you deal with that? And we will see that in chapter 36. Now, if, the, if there were no daughters and the inheritance then went to the father's brothers, if there was no brothers, the inheritance went on to the next of kin. Now, it's interesting. That makes sense. And it, it kind of goes right straight through. And you're probably not surprised by that. But he says, it shall be to the children of Israel a statue of judgment. It's kind of remarkable when you think about it and, and think about the, these laws that, that they were all made 
in anticipation by faith. If you really think through all that, coming into the inheritance of, of, of this land in Canaan, which they have not been, they're just now entering. They've already had the, um, the counting of each of the tribes. They now know what size tribes they have. We studied that last week. Now they're going to go in and buy lots. They're going to start divvying up this land of Canaan, the promised land. And it's all by faith and all these ordinances and how is this all going to play out? Because these women's like, wait, we're going in to have land. We don't, we don't get to have land. That's not fair. And God works that out, obviously, here. But it's all by faith that these daughters were real women of faith, concerned about dividing up what they did not yet have in their possession, in their hands. They just saw what God said was going to happen. They believed God was going to give them the land. They were going to conquer the land. They were going to get the land. And so they came by faith to say, we would like to have our part of the land. I, I just think it speaks highly of these women of faith. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Oh, how amazing there is a oneness, a unity, regardless of male, female, or any status, that we're one in Christ, and there's a unity in Christ. And, and it's a, God was a, is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, and how we see this beautiful picture that we have as, as we come by faith to live according to God's way. We see now the appointing of this new leader here as they're going into the promised land. We see in verses 12 through 14, it says, Now the Lord said to Moses, Go up into the mount of Er." Uh, er and see the land which I have given to the children of Israel. And when you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother, was gathered. For in the wilderness of Zen, Zen, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to hallow me at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah, at Kadesh in the wilderness of Zen. So if you remember going back um, into uh, when we studied the fact that there was a rebellion uh, and there was all kinds of things going on through the time in the wilderness, but we come to finally, everyone has passed. Everyone, Moses seems to be the last one standing uh, Besides Caleb and Joshua, who was men of faith who are getting to go in and lead here. But Moses gets to, to hear from God that, uh, do you remember in the wilderness of Zen where you, there was strife in the congregation and you rebelled against my command? Remember he got really frustrated and he struck the rock twice to get water and he was not to strike the rock twice. And because of that rebellious heart at that moment, keeps Moses from being able to go into the promised land. Now think about that. Moses, though 120 years old, and physically still was first told he was to die before the promised land. God comes and says, you're going to die. You're not going into promised land. You're 120 years old. I know you're in good shape. I know nothing's wrong with you. But you're going to die. According to Numbers 20, you remember those days, what happened in the, mount, in the wilderness of Zen, and it will still 
be many months from the point God says to him, you're not going to go into the promised land, you're going to die. Many months until Moses would climb to the top of that mountain and able to see the promised land that God said and his forefathers that God promised, everything that they've been living for, that this is going to happen. And we know in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 2, and then 34, verse 7, talks about this time where this is where Moses will die on top of that mountain. But yet, God told him of it here, months ahead. Why? Because he was preparing his heart for the right time for the transition uh, from the old leadership into the new leadership. So it wasn't a sudden death and they're like, okay, who's leading? What's going to happen? What do we do next? God always, when he's transitioning leadership over his congregation, when it's of God, it's a smooth transition. If it's not a God, it's a sudden, there's something probably more likely was not right in that transition of new leadership over the congregation. God is a God of order. He doesn't drop uh, having a shepherd over the flock that he is, has uh, for that man. But here there is, was repu- uh, uh, a consequences to his rebelliousness uh, back in Numbers 20 when he struck the rock. And this is why the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9.10. Many people think, oh, I'm going to fear God. What is God going to do to me? No, no, no. It's more of the fact that we, we ought to walk in the fear of God, not afraid of God. We should be in awe of God. But what, if you're going to be afraid, it should be afraid of the repercussions of our sins that will have consequences on us. That is what we should be concerned about for sure. Verses 15 through 17, we see that then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, of, of, Lord the God of the spirits of all flesh set a man over the congregation, who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. See? Moses' response. Can you imagine? God just all of a sudden looks at you and says, You're going to die. You're not going. You're not leaving. You're staying right here. You're going to die on this mountaintop. When you get up on the mountain, you're going to die. Now imagine God clearly saying that to you. How would you respond? Well, we see a godly man respond by saying, let the Lord, God who's over all flesh, over all people, this is what you say. That is your will. Please set a man over the congregation. That's all he could think of. He wasn't thinking about him. He didn't say, God, give me another chance. Please, I beg you. you know, I'm, I'm going to intercede for myself this time. I've been interceding for the congregation. I'm going to intercede. Please let me go in the promise. And let me get some of the benefits from the, 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 the land of milk and honey. And, and I want to build my own little retirement home on a beautiful mountain. And... No, Moses didn't do any of that. No complaints. No rebuttals. No, com- no manipulation. No false promises and vows. Please keep me alive. No. All he could still think about is who? The congregation. Please make sure there's a man set up over them so they would not be the people 
that does not have a shepherd. The sheep do not have a shepherd to guide them, to lead them, to not only to be, go before them and lead them, but go uh, you know, in before them, go out before them, to look at them from all perspectives. Because after the hearing of his coming fate, his only concern was for the people. These are the people that God put a heart for the people, and he loved these people, and he didn't want these people to be hurt. That is what a pastor, that is what a shepherd has a heart for the people. He does not want to see. So if there's a change in, in, in leadership, it's got to be a smooth transition and allow God to set. Notice that Moses said, God, you appoint who it's going to be. Not the congregation, not Moses who's leaving. He, Moses let me find someone for it and I'll make sure it's always going to, I'm going to work it all out and do the resumes and I'm going to figure it out. No, no, we'll have a committee. Oh, we'll have a congregation committee. They'll, they, 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 all these people have been rebelling all these years and stuff. We'll get them to make a decision of who should be the next shepherd. See, we know what the scripture says and how the leadership should be appointed. It's by God. God makes it obvious of who he wants over the people and shepherd them and minister to them. And so Moses understood that. God understands that. Why do so many today don't understand that? I don't know. Scripture is pretty clear to me. See, because Moses understood a, shepherd without a, a sheep without a shepherd are in constant danger. Constant danger. Why? Because there are provisions of food, provisions of water, provisions of the wolves and enemies and people stealing and, and all these kinds of things. They, it doesn't take much to spook the sheep and cause problems. And God still wants his sheep to have a shepherd. If sheep need a shepherd to minister to them, to guide them and take them to better, you know, to feed them and making sure they're protected. Because there's a lot of dangers out there. There's holes, there's pits, and there's sliding down. They have to rescue them and bring them back. And we see this very clear connected with our, the, the actual ultimate sense or fulfillment by Jesus Christ, who is the good shepherd, who is prophesied in the Old Testament in Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. And it's revealed, this says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, John 10, 11. We also see that in the New Testament that the shepherd is also a pastor teacher. It's an office, a position that God appoints someone there. And in the Greek word for pastor is the word for shepherd. We see that in Acts 20 verse 28. We see that in 1 Peter 5 2. Jesus is the chief shepherd and pastors are the under shepherds. We see that very clearly in 1 Peter 5, 4. So the scripture is very clear of the position of, of what God appoints that man to in a position of authority to watch over it, to lead, to come in, to come out, making sure the sheep are taken care of. And the job of the shepherds is simple, to feed. John 21, verses 15 through 17. The pastor is to, the shepherd is to feed the flock. They're also to lead the flock, to lead them out and bring them in, the scripture says, to give guidance and direction for the sheep to follow. That is what a shepherd does. 
Jesus was also moved with compassion when he saw the people as sheep without a shepherd. We see that in Matthew 9.36, Mark 6.34. And Moses' character is in line with the Messiah, Jesus Christ, because he too, they'll have no shepherd. They need a shepherd. God, please appoint someone to replace me. Now, It's a hard issue, right? He's just pouring out his belief. There's no question he knows God's going to take care of his people. We see it in verse 18. And the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the Spirit. This is a Spirit-filled and and covered man. That's one of the qualifications of it needs to be. You need the Spirit of God to direct and give you wisdom to lead people, especially two to three million, right? And lay your hands on them. Now you see where we come, we're, we're ordaining people to become elders uh, or deacons. We lay hands on them. We see that exactly what he needed to do here. Set before Eliezer, the, the priest, because the priest is going to lay hands and pray and ask God to anoint, right? And before all the congregation. And the people they're going to be leading needs to see who's being ordained. Inaugurate him in their sight, and you shall give some of your authority to him, that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. He shall stand before Eliezer the priest, who shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment of the Urim. And at his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in. Notice, by his God's, you know, the word is coming and directing people. It's just a, it's a beautiful thing. And he and all the children of Israel with him and all the congregation. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua, sent him before Eliezer the priest, and before all the congregation. He laid hands on laid his hands on him and inaugurated him just as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. So right up to this point, Joshua was mostly known as his a servant-like association or associate, an assistant to Moses. He has been a faithful man. He's been right there by his side through the thick and thin of all the things and watching all these people. This man had to bury a lot of bodies the entire first generation of bodies of people in the desert. He's been in the trenches working really hard to take care of the people through that whole time of 40, 38 years of wandering in the wilderness to, uh, till the next generation came up. But he was right there by his side. We see that even noted in Exodus 24, 13. But that time as Moses' humbled servant prepared him to take the new leadership role he was now called to now he didn't sit there i'm going to serve moses until this man gets old enough to die off it's it's really sad that that does happen people wait until the old man dies also then so who can finally take over as pastor that is absolutely ungodly thinking you understand that that's very ungodly thinking but it happens it shouldn't happen. Because what you should know is what the scripture says. When God removes that leader who's been leading that congregation, it's God who now sets and appoints who will come in and continue to lead. Not the ones who think they're the next. And nowhere in the scriptures we see Joshua trying to fight and take over and do anything that would try to imply that he thought he would be the next one in line. 
But God knew. He just humbly served as the assistant to Moses. And then, of course, when it came to this, this, this ceremony, there was a public presentation, laying of hands. And it was important because they wanted the whole nation to know that Joshua is now the new leader and the nation ex- was to be expected that they would listen to him and follow his word. Now we get to chapters 28 and 29, we see the sacrificial system. Keep in mind in chapters 28 and 20 are basically a reiteration of what we learned in the book of Leviticus, dealing with sacrifices, holy days, and festivals. So the question always then asked is, well, why are these laws repeated here? Well, because this is the new generation. And every generation must be instructed and reminded of God's ways. Also, we have a new leader, and that new leader's first task is to come in front of the congregation, in this case, the new congregation, and present God's ways. Bringing them back to the basics and understanding of how you worship and serve God on a daily basis. How important that continues as parents raise up their children in a new generation. Why we have such a heart for the children's ministry to raise up the next generation with the word of God. Not just little tiny little stories and playing and entertainment. No, no, no. We want them to study the word of God just like you're studying the word of God. We want them to learn how to worship God just like you need to learn how to worship God. And learn how to pray and how to lovingly fellowship. We teach them in the children's ministry exactly what we're trying to teach teach you as an adult. Why? Because that generation needs to grow up knowing God's ways. And that's exactly why this is all laid out here. Now, we won't go through all of these words from a time perspective, but look at chapter 28 verses 1 through 8. It's talking about that morning and evening offering. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, commanding the children of Israel, and saying to them, My offering, it's his offering, my food, For my offerings made by fire as a sweet aroma to me, and you shall be careful to offer to me at their appointed time. So Israel was commanded to bring a male lamb, as you read that, to the Lord every morning and every evening, each day. Began and ended with this statement of need for atonement. That was for atonement, to bring a oneness with God, an atonement for, by sacrifice and expression of devotion to the Lord. They were to do it daily. Can you imagine? Can you imagine people today worshiping God through sacrifice where they had to show up every day, morning and night and give that for the atonement for their family? People have troubles getting out of their bed. Can you imagine coming to the temple and then disturb their, their sequence of events of the day and, and in front of their TV or whatever, and, but you have to go back to the temple at a certain time and wait in line of all these people? <laughs> oh, people. And we, we complain about how difficult it is to, you know, anyway, I won't go down that road. 
But it reminds us that it's appropriate to begin and end our day with the statement of trusting in God's atonement and expression of our devotion to him. So even though we do not, of course, bring sacrifices, we must have that same devotion morning and night. Throughout the day of our, the fact that we've been at one with God because of the blood and the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's finished on the cross. It's done. And we were able to freely come and devote and worship our God because of the fact of that final sacrifice. So even though we don't physically got to do something, understand we get to, get to come freely wherever we are. And yes... If it's difficult to get out of bed, please make it productive and, <laughs> and make sure you're worshiping and praising God while you're in that bed you're, when you can't get out. We should be like the psalmist and seek the Lord in the morning. The psalmist says in Psalm 5.3, My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you and I will look up. Psalm 88, 13. But to you I have cried out, O Lord, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. The psalm continues. A psalmist continues. And, and he says right here, the psalmist says, Seek the Lord in the evening as well. Psalm 63, 6. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. Psalm 141.2, let my prayer set before you as incense, the lifting up my hands at the evening sacrifice. Oh, it doesn't stop there. The psalmist even says, seek the Lord all the time. Psalm 55.17, it says, evening and morning and at noon, I will pray and cry aloud and he shall hear my voice. Oh, you want to know God's will for your life? Start with crying out and praying and talking to him and worshiping him morning, noon, and evening. Get that right. And you'll watch that relationship you have with God blossom. Verses 9 through 10, we see the Sabbath offering. In verses 9 and 10, we see this evening Sabbath day, an additional lamb was sacrificed every morning and every evening there on the Sabbath. We see in verses 11 through 15, a monthly offering. It says right here, at the beginning of your months, you shall present a burnt offering to the Lord, two young bulls, one ram, and seven lambs in their first year without blemish. And you can read down through there, there's flour and oil and, and, and just goes on and on and on and on here. But it shows you how expensive and how much they give, how much they're sacrificing. It was not just an animal. It was all the things that come with that in regards to a proper, and this was monthly. It's part of their monthly feast that they would do for the leaders of the nation. We see that in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 5. Later in uh, Israel's history, the, they became this thing called the New Moon Festivals. The challenge was they became such a, a big party of bringing this every month and opportunities, it became excess. And they've taken it from a worshiping into a more of a party and gathering experience. And that didn't please God. It was licentious behavior that become 
these monthly new moon festivals. And that God says, even in Isaiah 1.14, he says, God says to these erring people, I hate your new moons. I know you think it's, you're doing what I've asked you to do. I know you're coming and doing them, but you're turning into this, this, this party and this, this all fleshly experience and everything else. You're erring. You're, you're errors. That's just, I, I hate it. Yeah, I know you're showing up to the temple. I know you're t- doing these things, but that doesn't please me whatsoever. We see in verses 16 through 25 offerings at Passover in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It says, on the 14th day of the first month in the, is the Passover of the Lord. And on that 15th day of this month is the Feast. Unleavened Bread shall be eaten for seven days. And again, you'll see as you continue to read through there all the way down to verse 25, it was important because in addition to the lamb each household was to offer to God, the priests were also required to bring these offerings to God at the time of Passover on behalf of the entire nation. It was a special offering to cover the sins for the nation. Now when you studied it, and we studied Leviticus, you remember Leviticus 23 really depicts the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It speaks of the burial of Christ. We see in verses 26 through 31 of chapter 28 of, verse, uh, of Numbers is the offering of the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. And we see that as on the day of the first fruits, when you bring a new grain offering to the Lord, your, your feast of weeks there in verse 26. And that you had to make sure that was an atonement for you, is, is what he was saying, is that this atonement is for you to be sure that you are without blemish. And so the primary meaning of the feast of Pentecost was, it was not atonement, but thanksgiving for the harvest of what God is providing, if you remember that. And for yet every feast of Israel was to carry with it the idea of atonement, just the same as our own life should be lived in constant awareness of the atonement made to us. So we're very thankful for God's provision and and bountiful uh, harvest and the celebration of that and the fact that God had blessed you and there's a oneness there's a there's a a oneness with God in regards to the celebration with that in Leviticus 23 I believe the first of uh, the feast of first fruits speaks of Jesus's resurrection from the dead also noted in 1 Corinthians 15 20. So you had the unleavened bread speaking of his burial. Now the Feast of First Fruits talking about uh, Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And then we go into chapter 29, which is the sacrificial system continues. We see the offerings of, at the Feast of Trumpets. And the seven, it says in verse 1 of chapter 29, In the seventh month of the first day of the month, you shall a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work for you. It is a day of blowing the trumpets. So in this festival, as you read down through to verse 6, you're going to see that this feast or this feast of top, uh, a trumpet speaks of the rapture of the church, noted there in 1 Corinthians 15.52. And then you get to verses 7 through 11, which is talking about the offerings on the Day of Atonement, 
which takes, care, takes place on the 10th day of the 7th month. And you read through that, again, a lot of preparation and coming to sacrifice. It wasn't just bringing your perfect little lamb and just dropping at the feet of the priest and said, okay, we're going back to have dinner. No, no, there's a whole ceremony of preparation for this. And keep that thought in mind because as we take a look at these verses 7 through 11, this day of atonement, this feast of the day of atonement speaks of the tribulation. Again, if you track with the Leviticus 23 and seeing how God's, what he's teaching the people and how it comes to fruition in the New Testament. Verses 12 through 39 speaks of the offerings of the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's a lot of reading from 12 to 39. You can enjoy that read with a good cup of coffee and tea tonight before you go to bed. And as you take a look at that, this was required offering on the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. In verse 13 we see that. And on the second day, 12 young bulls, 2 rams, and 14 lambs. In verse 17 were required, and so on, and so on, and so on. There was a lot of sacrifices going on. Are you, are you getting that? God required so many animals and such an expensive sacrifice because the Feast of Tabernacles was a happy memorial of God's faithfulness to his people during the Exodus. And there's just this, these, all these animals, it was a, just a demonstration of the richness of God's provision to them. And again, if we're following along and connecting it to Jesus, this would be the Feast of Tabernacles speaks of the millennium, the joyous thousand-year period when Jesus will rule the earth with righteousness. And then lastly, verse 40 it says the, 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 the obedience of Israel, right? Is really that's showing obedience, their love for God. It says Moses is going to tell the, the children of Israel these words of the Lord. It says, So Moses told the children of Israel everything. Everything. He didn't leave, leave anything out. Everything was significant. And how important that Israel understand what God's way is as they're going through that threshold into the promised land. They needed to be reminded of the essential place of sacrifice when they go into the promised land in these new places. And promised land people know they need an atoning sacrifice and they need to remember it often. And they set that up. And I, I sat there and I pondered on that here and I go, Yes, the new generation, they need to know it. They, they understood it because they were raised up through it, but God really honed it in with the new leader communicating this with Moses. So there's a nice smooth transition that the congregation knew what God was doing in Moses' life is now Moses and Josh working together, Joshua working together, saying that God is now working through them and Joshua is going to be the transitioning out. It's a beautiful picture of transition. The second thing is, is when you go into a new promised land and all these things are new and exciting and you got land and, and you haven't had land, you've never known of ever having land, you were in Exodus, you were in Egypt under bondage and slavery and you've been wandering the, 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 the wilderness, all you know is the desert your whole life, most of them. Because they were all born in the desert. There's a, there's a risk 
When you transition into a new place, new land, the oohs and the ahs of experiencing and wanting to see the new land can deviate you or get you to squirrel moment away from worshiping and serving God. That's what the Lord was showing me. Be very careful. And I see it happen where young men are coming up, young ladies are coming up from a home. They've been serving God. They're probably in churches and loving Jesus. They get in the military. They get up here and all of a sudden, it's a whole new world. And thank God after a year, six months, year, two years for some of them, will come in and say, yeah, I've been wandering around doing my thing for the last six months, a year to two years, and I know I need to come back to church. Because the new land, the new place, the freedom experience can cause you to take your eyes off of Jesus and to, to be around God's people and to serve him and to worship him. That's a warning for us. And then lastly, right here at the very end of, at the end of verse 40, and just as the Lord commanded Moses. This was not Moses' words not Joshua's new leadership style. Let me tell you the way we're going to do this and move forward. No. We're going to continue to do what God is showing us to do. And we're going to continue to move forward. For Israel to obey what God commanded in Numbers 28 and 29, it meant that every year the priests sacrificed 1,086 lambs 113 bulls, 32 rams, more than a ton of flour, more than a thousand bottles of oil, and a thousand bottles of wine on behalf of the nation. And it was just Aaron and his sons that did all of that. Remember, the people, the, the fathers of those, the men of those households had their own separate sacrifices on top of what they brought for the priest to do. Think about the logistically. <laughs> Managing two to three million people and all those animals. And God made sure. But notice the most prominent animal of the, all the sacrifices was what? The lamb. Obviously, it's a prophetic reference of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1, 29. All these sacrifices did not include the sacrifice of anything about the household or individuals. No, no. This was just for the nation of Israel. In the days of Jesus, they have, historians have recorded there was 255,600 Passover lambs being sacrificed at one Passover just by the individuals and households. That is amazing to me when you look at the statistics. And guess what? Here's the last thought. None of those sacrifices was enough. None of them. All 255,000 plus all that we just talked about the nation, none of it was enough. Remember, that sprinkling of that blood on the, on the altar and everything else was just a covering. They had to come back daily, monthly, quarterly, nonstop to continue the atonement and covering. That's it. But when we come, 
when we look at this, not only after hundreds of thousands of sacrifices over the centuries could ever take a person's sin away, until what? But more importantly, to who? Until Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, who was sacrificed on that cross, and his sacrifice, his blood was what? Finished, and it can take away sins completely for eternity. That is why we worship Jesus. That is why we celebrate communion. That is why we pray morning, afternoon, evening, non-stopping, praying, talking to him like it's breathing. Because there's so much to be thankful for. Amen?